Welcome. It's great to have you all with us. You know, I've been working on being healthy, so I've started doing some of my own cooking. You know, my wife says that uh, if you want to uh, be healthy, pretty much just don't eat anything that has a TV commercial. Just about any food, so. <laughs> uh, so that's thinned it right down, but. <clears throat> but you know, uh, you know, chemistry is actually quite a bit like cooking. It's just, you know, remember not to lick the spoon. <laughs> a lot, a lot the same. So, well, it's time to hear from somebody who never licks the spoon. It's Dr. John with the Technology Spotlight. We have a lot of exciting things to look forward to. You can just see it now: drones flying left and right, delivering packages, giving people rides, flying all around. And drones crashing. We have a bright future, <laughs> don't we? Uh, but that's a pretty big issue if two drones crash when they're flying around in these swarms, which brings up an interesting question. If two drones crash, then who pays for return shipping? Yeah. No. <laughs> these, um, these new problems we're going to have in the future. Well, researchers have been studying how swarms of robots, drones, can fly together more efficiently. It's actually quite easy in a big open space. You know, they all go the same speed and everything's happy. But what about in a forest where there's things to dodge and the drones have to move out of the way? And that movement to get out of the way of the obstacle puts one drone in the way of the other drone. And you know, we have the same problem. If the forest isn't a forest of trees, it's a forest of skyscrapers, something like that. And as we start putting more uh, drones into the skies, this problem is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So some Swiss researchers started studying this, and they used some mathematical equations to look at it. And uh, I want to show you some of their simulations. And the first one I'm going to show you is what the drones would do if they were just keeping track of each other and trying to stay out of the way of each other. And then the next one shows their new algorithm. Let's see if you can figure it out. All right, so here's the video. You can see those lines moving, and uh, those are the drones flying through. And see how they kind of bunch up, and they kind of have to slow down for each other? Because the one in front slows down, and then the one behind has to slow down even more. And they finally make it through. Uh, now, here's the same thing with this new algorithm. And I want you to notice that they move through much quicker. And uh, it's funny because the way that they move through much quicker is a lot more like how insects, a swarm of insects or a swarm of birds would do it, <laughs> which uh, is probably a little hint as to where they got some of their ideas. But it turns out that the algorithm that they added is a predictive algorithm. So the drones are making predictions about their fellow swarm mates, if that's what you call it, maybe it's a flock, right? <laughs> uh, but they're making predictions about what they're going to do based on the obstacles and then deciding what to do ahead of time. And by doing that, they actually made it so they can get through obstacles like this forest, the simulation forest, 57% faster, which makes a really big difference if, you know, instead of same-day delivery, you're trying to do, you know, same-hour delivery or something like that. Isn't that coming? <laughs> I hope so, right? <laughs> uh, but uh, it's pretty amazing that they could do it in a simulation like this, but what about in the real world? So they needed a forest, and so they made a forest. <laughs> Looks a little more like a dance party, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, these are soft trees, so if the drones do crash, it's not the end of the drone, right? <laughs> and you'll notice up there, you can barely see the 3D cameras that were tracking the drones. Then, of course, they needed the drones, and here they are, little teeny drones, and if you look carefully, each drone has a ball on the top, which is what the 3D cameras would track to be able to see where they are. <clears throat> so I want to show you their little real-life demonstration of this algorithm. Here we go. So first, the drones need to take off. There they are. And then they randomize their position so they can test different results and then have them fly through the forest. Here we go. What a team. What a team. <laughs> and you'll notice how uh, the way that they move uh, looks like they're really well orchestrated. But really, all that's going on is they're making predictions about what the other drones will do and move accordingly. So algorithms like this could make a really big difference in the future as we start having more swarms. And again, this is really different than, say, uh, one mastermind telling a whole swarm of drones what to do. It's where the drones can interact with each other, which is really important if you want a system that's resilient. You know, if you have one control center controlling them all, then if that has a little Wi-Fi glitch or something, you know, then all the drones go and you have a terrible situation. Or if, on the other hand, one drone loses signal and he starts going rogue and hits into all the others, but if they're all detecting where each other are and responding accordingly, then that's where you get this magic of being able to have something really scalable and have even more and more and more drones. So uh, in addition to the new algorithms to try to predict where other drones are going to be. It's also really important to be able to track where the other drones are and keep track of those things uh, while they're flying. And the funny part is, again, this is what birds and insects are really good at. And so I think we still have a lot to learn. But this is going to be really important down the road, isn't it? You know, someday you'll probably look up, is it a bird? It's a, is it a plane? No, it's my package, right? <laughs> That's all the tech we have the time for. All right. Now it's time for Breakthrough Moments in Science with Tobias. All right, well, get ready because this breakthrough is a little bit scary, okay? Yeah, we're talking about something huge dangerous but majestic. Is this an Arnold Schwarzenegger biography? Or? No, okay? No, we're talking about lightning, okay? The discovery of lightning. Now that sounds funny, the discovery, of, was, was that like a caveman walked out once? Oh, there it was, no. Um, more of the discovery of what is lightning and what, what's actually going on. Because lightning, if you think about it, you go outside, you see lightning, you hear and feel the thunder. Um, it's a pretty intimidating feeling when you're out there in the middle of a field or something, and it, it's very dangerous. And so for generations of mankind, people were just terrified of lightning. And not only what it could do to them, but their homes, and it was a real danger. So we need to jump back to, of course, Mr. Benjamin Franklin and um, his interest in so many different things that uh, he was working on and hearing about, and then he'd work on it. And one of the big ones was this new electricity. And he heard about, and we're gonna just jump over this real fast, but 
he started hearing about things like the Leyden jar. And that was this, this jar that you could actually hold a charge of this electricity. And by now, we already had static electricity generators where they'd spin something. And you could have your hand or something rub on the spinning uh, sphere and generate static and then fill a charge, a zap. So people are starting to explore with this electricity and a lot of different theories of what it is. And when Franklin heard about the Leyden jar and started working with it and doing things, he started to come up with a lot of theories on the characteristics of this electricity and how it worked. And he's actually the one who coined a lot of the terms like positive, negative, charge, conductive, um, even the word battery. He, he came up with that name because the sound of the zap um, from the Leyden jar battery, which he named the battery, sounded like a battering ram to him. So it's the battery, and it's still that today. Um, so he's, he's figuring out all this stuff. But one of the big things was that it's not you're creating electricity. You're actually creating an imbalance of a positive charge and a negative charge of these positive particles, these negative particles. And the zap is not electricity being made so much as electricity the, the balancing out or the neutralizing, it's now neutral again, of these two sides. Okay, so if it's a Leyden jar and you touch it and there's a spark, it's actually, there's a charge of negative on one side, a charge of positive on the other, and the zap is those two extremes leveling out. So that's something that he really believed. And as he's studying this, um, he starts thinking about lightning. And he actually writes a letter to a friend with a really interesting idea where he lists 12 characteristics of lightning that are like static electricity. And if you think about it, things like the shape of lightning, it's, it's a lot like stat, you know, the little tiny electrical bolts of a static charge. Um, even the sound, he says, is similar. It's a little bit louder, but the sound. And he starts to notice different similarities between these two. And he starts to theorize that what if lightning is static electricity? What if lightning is, again, there's an imbalance of a positive and negative charge and then a leveling out, and the leveling out of those two extremes is the lightning bolt. And so he starts putting together some writings of this theory and maybe some experiments that we could do to try to actually prove this. And his, his thinking would be basically that, okay, there's this big storm and you've got the clouds, there's a negative charge being built up at the bottom of those clouds from all that movement of those particles in the clouds. And as that, so it's static electricity. It's, it's the same idea as rubbing the balloon in your hair and you're building up that charge. Well, there's a charge up here of negative. Well, if there's such a strong negative charge building up, then the ground, which can actually conduct electricity, the ground is having all of its negative charge pushed down until the ground is mostly positive. So now you have the two extremes building up. And so since there's the negative up here, the positive down here, and it's getting stronger and stronger, then his theory was the lightning was it striking down and leveling out or balancing those two charges. So he puts together an idea of that you could put a guy in a, a little house, okay, and have this iron rod <laughs> sticking out and running down into this little chamber. Now, this is, it's insulated from the ground, and his theory was if you took a rod, uh, something interesting he had found by now is that um, 
raw, if you had a, a metal object that you're going to use in these experiments, if it was pointed at the end, then the, the charge, whether it was negative or positive, would be more concentrated rather than if you had like a sphere because then the charge is like spread out all around that sphere where if it's pointed, then you should be able to have a more concentrated charge of, of positive or negative depending on what you were doing. So if the man in the chamber had one of these, a little rod and held it out during a storm, don't do this, okay? <laughs> Not a good idea. Um, and his, his letter actually was pretty careful, but there was a French guy who did try it and it wasn't good, okay? So, but if you did it, then there would be a static electricity in the atmosphere from those storm clouds and they would actually be pulled into this, this wire down and you could actually get a spark from the rod that you were holding. And the guy's supposed to be standing on an insulator. So we're not gonna get much deeper in that. He never got to do this, he, Benjamin Franklin, never got to do this experiment because he was waiting for the church that was being built that was gonna, they were gonna put this rod on for him so he could do this experiment. And he got tired of waiting, so he said, where's a kite? Okay, and then this part, well, there's so many different versions of this story, but basically he had a silk kite. Okay, it's silk so it can get wet and still fly. And he was basically a storm chaser. And he wasn't trying to get the kite zapped by lightning, um, but what he did was he put a little rod or wire, pointed wire, on the kite, and then down lower he had a key. He at least wrote about this, and some people say he did it. He had a key on the end of the string, and then from the key to him he had a silk string. Silk was like the thing he used when you wanted to have an insulator, and so it didn't conduct, so electricity couldn't travel on it, because silk is a pretty good insulator. So he held that side, and then just being in a tumultuous storm, he believed that there should be a charge that he should be able to fill by putting his hand near the key. And he, he says he was able, at least in some of the writings that they have, uh, to fill a charge or a zap from the key. So this is not a lightning, and he's trying to fill lightning. Um, I think he knew that wasn't a very good idea. But just proving that there was a charge up there, a static electric charge that he was able to sense and identify. So he took this discovery and he started looking at this problem of lightning. And it, I mean, it destroyed homes and houses, churches especially. Churches were one of the tallest buildings at the time. And a strike from a, thunder, a thunderbolt, a bolt of lightning uh, could put the whole house in flames. And people were terrified whenever a storm would come through because if it strikes, it could be devastating. So he starts looking at this. And so his plan was, we'll put a rod, a pointed rod at the top of a building and it'll have a wire running down into the ground so that when that charge happens and there's a rebalancing, there's the positive charge down here, negative up here. When that happens, basically, or when it's trying to happen, his plan was this needle would be emptying the charge constantly. So if a storm starts forming, this needle's just draining electricity. And it's a pretty you know, cool idea. And we'll just have these rods everywhere and it'll drain the electricity out into the ground. And that didn't end up being as effective as they had thought, but it did pull the lightning strikes to those places because what lightning's trying to do is it's, is, as far as we know, is it's looking for the shortest route possible to the ground so it can get that balance. And so as it's coming down, it's looking for a place to hit. And that's something, so 
to see this really, you have to have a really high-speed camera to be able to see this. And so this is a really, really slow down video of a lightning strike. And you see it going out, then coming back, going out, coming back, going out, coming back. These are called step leaders. They're like the first step of a lightning strike. And what it's doing is it's searching around for something to hit to the shortest path. And so it's like all these messengers going out looking. And when it finds something like the lightning rod, okay, that's going, again, it's connected to the ground. When it finds that and it strikes it, one of those searchers strikes it, then all the power goes to it. So here's a picture, but look at this. Those aren't white trees. Those are actually bolts that are coming up from the ground. They're called sprites. And basically, that's the positive side. Or, and they're basically going up, saying, I'm here, I'm here. And you can see that one has been chosen, OK? <laughs> <laughs> and that's where it's gone. So, so w- if you watch this, they're searching, then they find it. They search, find it. And so it goes down, searches, finds one. And so what the lightning rod does is it kind of says, hey, instead of striking you know, the wooden roof, how about you strike right here? And so that's what allow the lightning bolts to be able to be honed in and more controlled. And it, it uh, like we probably all know, uh, changed so much about how tall you could build buildings and how much more safe it was when a storm went through. Um, so pretty incredible breakthrough. And I just have to add one quick cool thing because Benjamin Franklin, um, he had a lightning rod in his house. but. He didn't have it go into the ground. He ran it down his chimney into his house outside his bedroom above the stairs. And then he had it jump. So it stops. And on the end of the lightning rod is a bell dome. And then about seven inches over here is another bell dome. So there's a space. The the other bell dome went into the ground. And then he put this little ball on silk string, this metal ball, in between the two bell domes. Okay, here's a picture of it. And he found that just a storm, as it gets, starts to get intense, no lightning yet, just it's getting intense, it starts to build up a charge on that one bell. And the other side, it's, it's connected to the ground, it starts building up a charge on the other, and both of them start influencing the ball with charge until one of them is so strong and the ball's another, it's the polarity of the ball, positive, negative, remember, um, opposites attract, but the same repel until finally the ball gets pushed and it hits one of them. And if it hits one of the bells, all of a sudden it balances to that bell and now it repels from that bell because it's the same as that bell and it hits the other one and it starts going (laughs) So if if a storm was getting intense, his bell would start ringing. And then if a lightning struck, it would be really ringing. And then one night he wrote that he woke up from a, a buzzing and crackling sound and he went out and he said that the the lightning bolt was so strong that the ball was pushed completely out of the way and the electricity was just going from one to the other and it, he said it was like sunlight because it was so bright I'm going across so pretty cool um, <laughs> his wife did write him a letter saying how do you turn this off okay <laughs> so yeah that's like the coolest weather contraption ever so <clears throat> so if something is scary and unknown then science can probably save the day thank you Right, and now introducing Roger Billings. 
magazine launch. <laughs> what, what was that? That, that was Peche's entree. Entrance. She didn't okay. look like she made it very well. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> One, three, two. <laughs> Splat. <laughs> so did you hear Dr. John talk about drones delivering packages? I did. He's really excited about and it. And he says if you order today and you get it by tomorrow, that's no good. He wants it in an hour. Yeah, heard that too. <laughs> and then he told all about these predictive algorithms. Uh-huh. And you put one and one together, and you get this idea. What if someone from Amazon was listening to him? So they're now putting in predictive algorithms? So you get today what you're going to order tomorrow? <laughs> That's a little spooky. Oh, yeah, that is a little spooky. So you get home, oh, package, really, thank you. It's a box of Band-Aids. <laughs> it's like Spooky action and distance. Yeah, that is yes. really pretty exciting. <clears throat> Did you know I've been reading a new book? Can you About see that? Hydrogen. Yeah, this is a new book. It's called Hydrogen Powered Transportation. And it's by Dr. Ayer Vizzarolu, a friend of mine, a very good friend. And I, this is new. This just came out. You can't see it because you have to buy the book to see it. But there's a cute little picture of her right there. Um, <clears throat> we need some good new hydrogen books. If you want to get caught up on everything that's going on, it's yep. a good book to have. I, I have to tell you a little story about her husband, Dr. Neje Vizzarolo, also a good friend of mine. Years and years and years ago, there were six of us at a uh, energy conference, and we were all excited about hydrogen. And so we started having this unofficial visit out in the lobby of the hotel. It was down in Miami, Florida, by the way. And uh, we decided that someone should start a hydrogen energy research organization. And one of us, actually happened to be a guy named Bill Escher, as I recall, suggested that we name this new organization the Hindenburg Society. <laughs> After, you know, the Hindenburg airship mm -hmm. that was full of hydrogen and and caught on fire. Uh -huh. You'd say, why would you do that? There's actually a good reason. The Hindenburg was the length of three football fields. It was a thousand feet long. Amazing, wasn't it? Was it was a long, long airship. Mm -hmm. And when it was designed, it was supposed to be full of helium. Helium is a light gas, like a helium balloon, and it would lift it up, but helium will not burn. Turned out that right then, Helium wasn't available to the guys that designed this airship, so they went ahead and filled it with hydrogen. Hydrogen will burn. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you think about it, that airship was like a giant fuel tank, a thousand feet long, full of hydrogen. Yeah. It was coming into Lake Hurst, New Jersey, and there was a <clears throat> thunderstorm in the area, the static charge built up, Something ignited the hydrogen, and it went up in a great ball of flames. Interestingly, the Hindenburg was still up a couple hundred feet in the air when it caught on fire. And this big, giant airship came floating to the ground. It had a lot of people in it. And interestingly, some people were hurt, but most of the people on that airship 
survive that accident safely. And they did that because, and only because, it was hydrogen. If wow. it had been any other fuel, no one would have survived. And so we thought that was a real good reason to name it the Hindenburg Society. Well, Dr. Vizzarolu, being the very wise scientist that he is, uh, suggested that uh, we go forward with it as the International Association for Hydrogen Energy, which he went on to form, and which has now been publishing a journal and, and creating hydrogen energy conferences around the world for decades. Amazing, amazing guy. So if you need a good book and you want to get all caught up on hydrogen, I highly recommend this. Hydrogen is gas, and everybody needs to know about it. Dr. Vizzarolu has some neat things to say about you. Well, why wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has been a very, very dear friend for a long time. He thinks that you're the man who's you know, the pioneer of hydrogen. Well, uh, certainly I'm the oldest. <laughs> I don't think that's but, what you're um, <laughs> I, I'd like to talk a little bit about hydrogen today. I think that uh, it's interesting to continue. You know, we've been talking about it for the last few weeks. But uh, there are more stories. And, you know, these hydrogen stories sometimes get really intense. They get really interesting. Uh, I've learned a lot about this world, about science, and about life from hydrogen experiences, hydrogen experiments and experiences. And the one that I, I would like to share with you today is about the idea of building a bus that would run on hydrogen. Think about that. A whole bus very, be able to carry passengers that would create no pollution. That was the idea. And I'd like to show you an artist's conception of what we, th we thought about these many years ago, the hydrogen bus. There it is. Just imagine. And we had an artist rendering created of this. So this would be a bus that had wheels, like any bus, but when it drove, it would be powered by hydrogen. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, the president of the Sierra Club in California, uh, Dr. Zweig, a, a medical doctor, became very excited about this bus, and he lived in a city that he called was the smog capital of the world. Riverside, California, as it turns out, is kind of nestled in the mountains in the eastern part of the South Coastal Air Basin. And all of the cars in Los Angeles give off their emissions of smog, which the wind usually blows right back to Riverside. And so he thought it would be wonderful if all of those cars in Los Angeles would convert to hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So he got on board and the uh, California Department of Transportation funded this project to actually build a hydrogen bus. Well, there were a lot of pioneering things that we had to do to make a bus. The biggest challenge over the other cars that we'd already built was to store the hydrogen in a very, very safe form. And so we decided we were going to store the hydrogen as a powder, uh, a powder called metal hydride. Remember, hydrogen's a gas. If you get it cold enough, it'll turn to a liquid, but it has to get 420 degrees below zero, which is really cold. 
And so the idea was we will react hydrogen gas with a metal and it'll turn into a powder. Now, if you take something really deadly poisonous like chlorine gas and react it with a metal like sodium, you get table salt. The two react together and you get a new substance. Now, the chemical bond between chlorine and sodium is very strong. So it's hard to break it apart. They call that an ionic bond. We wanted to react hydrogen with a metal, but we wanted the bond to be real weak so that we could put the hydrogen in, and then when we were ready to drive the bus, we could pull it back out to burn it in the engine. We chose a metal alloy made out of 50% iron and 50% titanium. Iron, titanium. And you're going to say, where did you get a metal that was an alloy of iron and titanium? And the answer is we couldn't find any place to get it. We really couldn't. So I found an old surplus vacuum chamber. And I bought it, real cheap. Had a big door that would open up. You could put something inside, close it, bolt it down, turn on the vacuum pump, and it would pull a vacuum. And then we bought a big used radio transmitter. And we hooked it up to a coil inside so it would start transmitting the radio waves, which would melt the metal, and we could make our own alloy. So we bought some scrap titanium and put it in there. Now, where were they using titanium? Well, they use it in airliners, for example. And we got some of the scrap, and then we got some rebar. You know what rebar is? Yeah. That's what they put in concrete to make mm -hmm. it stronger. You know those metal iron bars? We got some of those, cut them up, put them inside, closed it up, fired up the transmitter. Since the transmitter did not have an antenna, all the energy went inside this chamber and it melted. We poured it out and we had these pieces of funny looking metal. And when we hit it with a sledgehammer, this metal shattered like glass into pieces. So it was a strange alloy. We put the alloy, of course we did it first in little experimental containers, but after we perfected the technique, we put it in big container and then we had to activate it, which was kind of tricky. After we activated it, you could inflate the tank, just like you'd inflate a tire, except instead of just inflating with gas, it would react. And the metal inside would turn from a metal into a white powder. And it stored an enormous amount of hydrogen, and it did it very safely. Now, there's so many stories I could tell about metal hydrides. In fact, it was trying to figure out how to make these metal hydrides work that first drug me into the computer industry. We built a computer to test all of these different alloys to see which one would work best. And next thing I knew, I was in the computer business, which was good. But <laughs> I have to tell you about these hydrides. So you break it with a hammer, and you get these little chunks of metal, put them in the tank, close it up, and then we'd heat it, and then we'd pull a vacuum, then we'd put hydrogen under, under pressure, and it sounded like popcorn inside the tank. 
You ever heard it pop, 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 and listen to it? And what was happening is the hydrogen went into these little pieces of metal about the size of a pea. They would explode. And that's what you hear. All these pieces of metal exploding, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller until they started to be like a very fine powder. And then we could put hydrogen in and put it in and put it in, and it was way too much for that little space. We'll put more in, and it can store an enormous amount of hydrogen. And it was very safe. It wouldn't explode. It was a way to be able to carry hydrogen aboard the bus that would be safe enough so people wouldn't be afraid to ride the bus. Whenever you do a, a science experiment, all of you science fair guys know this. You get to the point on the optimism curve where it takes a dive. And on ours, just when we were sure we had the answer, well, remember I told you the piece of metal would pop into smaller pieces, and the next time you charge it, they get smaller, and the next time you charge it, they get smaller and smaller. They kept getting smaller until they got so small, they go through our filter into the engine, and they ruined the engine. That's sad. That wasn't exactly what we were hoping for. <laughs> and then one of our scientists suggested that if we'd put just a pinch, not a whole bunch, but just a pinch of one more metal, happened to be manganese, when we melted the, the alloy, that it wouldn't keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Scientists called the process of it breaking down every time it charges decrepitation. And when you'd add <laughs> just 1% of manganese, the decrepitation would stop at a particle size of 10 microns. And by the way, that's really small, okay? And then we had a centered metal filter, so it all stayed in the tank and it worked. What does centered metal filter mean? I don't know what that means. <laughs> but I think what they do is they take pieces of metal. Mm -hmm. In this case, our filter was titanium. But they take pieces of metal, and they put them in a tube, and they mash them all in together. So there's all these powder pieces of metal meshed together. And then they put in a furnace. So all those pieces of metal start to arc together, and they melt together. And then they take it out, and you have a rod that's porous, it has all these little holes, and it makes a really good filter. And I use centered metal in my fuel cells and my electrolyzers too. It's neat stuff. Everybody ought to learn about centered metal. But anyway, we're not talking about that tonight, if you don't mind. You may have a rocket ship. Oh Elon Musk has a rocket ship. We're talking about <laughs> hydrogen buses. My rocket ship needs some help. <laughs> it came down. <laughs> Yeah. It did. Good. I noticed, though, that yours didn't land like Elon's does. Work Not on yet. it. Not you should yet. work on that. Yeah. You definitely get your people on it. Okay. We're going, I'm going so to. So, anyway, we finally were able to build a bus. Now, this might be just a little bit out of character for the nature of our scientific discussion, but I'd like to introduce you to some of my crew that helped me build this bus. And here they are. This is me. Oh, oh, there they are. Look, there's I, and there's my crew. Those are yeah. those. These are, are the Billings Youngers. Are those yours? Yeah. They say Billings right on them. Yeah, they're branded. <laughs> yeah, these are my helpers. 
and uh, they helped us put together this bus. Now I want to go back to the other slide and show you here we are in Riverside, California at the launch of the hydrogen bus. And the bus uh, was delivered and they had a press release and we had the TV cameras and everybody come. And I was a little bit nervous because I knew I'd be talking on television and I wrote this nice big speech, what I was going to say, and Dr. Zweig told me he's going to get rid of all the pollution. And when you go to Riverside, it seemed like it was always so polluted there you couldn't even see the mountains. They have beautiful mountains, but the smog yeah. would make it hard to see. So I wrote my talk. and So now, if all the cars in California would convert to hydrogen, there would be no more smog. And you'd be able to look over there, and you'd be able to see beautiful mountains. California has beautiful mountains. Mm -hmm. And so I got there, and it was the day of the Santa Ana winds. <laughs> and some people know that that's the winds where it blows from the desert towards mm -hmm. the ocean, blows backwards. Yeah. It takes all that pollution and blows it right out of Riverside, right back to L.A. Yeah, so, so clear. Yeah, and so there we are, and I got my speech, and... And if all the cars were running on hydrogen, you'd be able to look right up there and see those beautiful mountains. It was a predictive thing. Yeah, and I said, <laughs> and if you can see the mountains with just one hydrogen bus. You're so smart on your feet. Yeah. Well, anyway. <clears throat> but it was really, really exciting to be able to make a bus that would not pollute the air and that would use hydrogen that could then be recycled. You could catch the water and make hydrogen again, and it would be an amazing thing. You want to see some more pictures? Absolutely. Okay, look at this one. In this picture, we're refueling the bus, and if you look back behind there, we have a bunch of tanks of pressurized hydrogen would hook up a line to the hydride tank. Now, remember, in the hydride tank, we had that metal powder. The metal powder would always stay in the tank. We'd put it in when we made it, and then it never had to be replenished. It could be used over and over and over again. And it would turn on the valve, and the hydrogen would flow in, just like inflating the tire. Only we're actually putting hydrogen into the tank. And if you look inside the tank, the metal, the little teeny, tiny specks of metal, as they would charge up with hydrogen, would turn into a white powder. And when all the powder had gone white, tank was full, and you're ready to go again. We had to make the bus so that it would be able to operate all day long in the, they used it in their Dalaride program. And it worked, and it was a pretty amazing thing. I think it was a, a very big technical accomplishment to be able to make a bus that would run off hydrogen, stored safely as a metal hydride, and, uh, and it really, Really ran well. So on the I mean, metal hydride, is there a gauge that tells you when it's finished being pressurized? How do you tell do you when tell? the hydride yeah. is fully charged? Yeah. And the answer is the pressure goes up. When you're putting the hydrogen into the tank, it's like when you're inflating your tire. When you start inflating your tire, you want to see if it's full, you take the pressure checker and put on there and it tells you how, how high the pressure is. If it's not high enough, you need more gas. With this system, it was the same way. You'd measure the pressure in the tank. When the tank was taken on hydrogen, the pressure would stay low. When it completely was charged full, then the pressure would go up, and that'd tell you that it was full. 
We later invented a fuel gauge for being able to tell how much was in there. But when we made this bus, that invention was still coming. Okay. And this next picture, I'd like to show you the bus zooming down the road. The bus ran very well. It had good power. It, uh, it drove nicely. And a lot of people took rides on it. How fun. Needless to say, we put great big letters all over it. Oh, yes. The hydrogen bus. In the next one, you see, yep, there we are. These are all the people looking at this. Now, in this shot, the photographer was able to capture my better side. <laughs> Is that you in the dark suit there? Oh, I think that could be me. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And you can see I look, you look pretty like I'm faced the other way. <laughs> yeah. But it was really exciting to have this project go really well and have so much success. And we got a lot of international notoriety and we're very excited about and, and happy about the, the engine. I'd like to also show you the hydrogen storage tank. Uh, if you look, oh, that jumped ahead and jumped ahead and just look around. It would be the one with the white tanks. The other one with the white tanks. It looks like my hydro. There isn't. There it isn't. Okay, that slide may have been commandeered by the other guys. Oh, they took it. Well, the hydride tanks are in the bottom of the tank, and like I say, they're full of hydride that was made in my furnace, homemade by a radio transmitter. We'll see them next week. I already saw them. But I haven't gotten to see them. Well, if you hadn't been flying around in space, you probably <laughs> wouldn't have been there to see it. Okay, but now I have to tell you some of the downside of this story. Um, it seems like um, a lot of people uh, speak unkindly of each other. And I'd like to talk about that for just a minute. I think we need to work as a society on planet Earth on how we speak uh, respectfully to and about each other. And I think that's really uh, a goal we ought to work on. Uh, it seems that whenever someone pushes a science really forward aggressively or does something really important, it ruffles feathers. And in this case, when this project was done, there were a lot of people that did not want to see anything other than oil. They wanted to see all the cars, all the buses running on petroleum products. And uh, various people had their different motivations for that. Some owned a lot of petroleum in the ground. They were afraid if we started building hydrogen cars, we wouldn't be able to use it. As it turns out, there's been a lot of demand for oil. But after we launched the hydrogen bus in Riverside, California, and it drove around for about two months, I got a telephone call from the operator and said, there's something wrong with the bus. It won't start. Uh, that's not what I wanted to hear. So I jumped my little airplane 
which I'm a pilot of, uh -huh. and flew to Apple Valley, because that's on the other side of where the smog is, went in there and looked at the bus, and sure enough, it would not start. Hmm. It would not start. Now, I want to show you the picture of the engine. If you look at the engine of the bus, you can see there's an air filter there. All of the air going into the engine is filtered because if there is dust or dirt in the air, it can go in and, and be abrasive and it wears out the engine. And so that's why we put that air filter on and all of the air goes in through the filter and then through that manifold into the engine. Well, I took the bolt off the top of that uh, filter and looked inside and going into the intake of the engine, there was sand. Oh. Now, sand couldn't get through that air filter. It would be impossible. And there wasn't a little bit of sand. There was a lot of sand. So we took a trailer down, picked up the bus, took it back to our laboratory, pulled the engine out of the bus, tore it apart, and somehow about a cup of beach sand had been poured into the intake of the engine. That wasn't kind. It was kind of a heartbreak. The sand, when it starts grinding up inside the engine, makes a real mess of things. And so we actually had to get a new engine and put it in the bus because that one had really been chewed up. We got another engine, put it back in, screwed the air filter back on, and it ran fine. Took it back to California, and it finished out the, the project. Uh, interestingly, before we even could issue a report on what we found, one of the newspapers ran a big story about how unreliable hydrogen buses are. And it really set our project back quite a ways. Uh, there is no engine that I know of that'll run with sand in it. Uh, <laughs> sand is kind of a well-known way to ruin an engine. And so that was a major setback to our project. Uh, in one of my other hydrogen cars, I was test driving it one day on the freeway, whipping along, and uh, <laughs> Have you ever got a flat tire mm -hmm. and you can feel it going So I pulled over the side of the freeway and got out and sure enough, the tire was as flat as a pancake. I'd picked up a nail on the road. So on the side of the road, I pulled out the jack. I was wearing my suit, my tie. <laughs> Just to impress. Pumped up the car. <laughs> By the way, this happened to be the liquid hydrogen-fueled Monte Carlo. <laughs> Took off the tire, got the spare out, just as the television film crew arrived. Aww. Hydrogen car breaks down on freeway. <laughs> yeah, that's not... I was really tired. I, I mean, <laughs> my tire was flat. But it, it is interesting how uh, you do have problems with new science. You really do, and, and that's a challenge. But so often the criticisms that come 
might not even be well-founded. Uh, I think any car could have hit that nail. I just thinking how wonderful it was that I saved all the gasoline cars from getting flat tires. <laughs> You're so kind. Yeah. But it was an honest, I mean, an honest breakdown of a car that could happen to any car. I've had other flat tires too. I like that, that word. Didn't make the news. Honest. Yeah. But word. there is another uh, side to that story, and that was um, someone asked me how fast a hydrogen car could go. Uh -huh. And um, you know, what do you say? Well, it can go as fast as any other car. Well, can it go faster? Can it go slower? And I got that question so many times, I, I made up an answer. What was it? It's kind of clever. He says, so how fast can the hydrogen car go? And I said, uphill or down? <laughs> but as it turns out, the hydrogen car could go the speed limit. And uh, a lot of people really want to know, well, can it go faster than the speed limit? One of the people that really wanted to know was a reporter from the Daily Mail newspaper in London. And this guy flew over from London to drive the car and he wanted to see how fast it could go. And I said, well, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're in this country we have speed limits. And he says, it would be worth a speeding ticket <laughs> to find out how fast it will go. And I thought, it's not just, a, what if this guy were to speed and get in an accident with a hydrogen car and they'd say it was because it was hydrogen, not because he was a reporter that was. So he said, well, we got to do it, we got to do it, we got to do it. So I came up with a good idea. What was it? I called the local police department. <laughs> That's and I told them that this guy wants to do a speed test. And we arranged to block off a section of the road where there'd be no cars so we could do a speed test. And we got in the car and we found out that it could go 90 miles an hour, which was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And then he pulled over and he got out of the car, the police cars pulled up and he said, I need you officers to give me a ticket. want a ticket? Yes, I want a speeding ticket. I want to tell the whole world that hydrogen cars are fast. <laughs> <laughs> so they did get a good picture, even though they didn't actually write him a ticket. But they got a nice picture of him getting a ticket from the uh, <clears throat> oh. policeman that was testing out the speed of a car. So moral of the story is Hydrogen energy research, any cutting edge scientific research is going to have ups and downs and we're gonna have our challenges and we're gonna have our problems. You remember me telling you a few weeks ago that when we went to the urban vehicle design competition with our little Volkswagen, that the spring on the carburetor looked like it had been cut. Yeah. Well, um, a rubber band corrected it we, we really need to work on our attitude. 
Uh, we're very competitive. We have our sports teams we cheer for, etc. And I, I love competition. I think it's a great motivation. But we really need to think about human kindness. And we need to learn how to say things that are appropriate to each other. Uh, one of the privileges which I enjoyed was a one-on-one -on -one meeting with uh, President Ronald Reagan. And my meeting took place in his office in uh, California right after he finished his term of, as president. So he was out of politics. And I had a, a wonderful sit-down, talk meeting with him. It, by the way, happened to be in the very building where they filmed one of the famous movies there on yeah. Avenue of the Stars, yeah. And um, it, it was a most inspiring and, and gracious meeting for me, one that I'll long, long remember. But something that I take away from my experience, not only of meeting Mr. Reagan, but of also watching him in many, many, many situations, he always spoke respectfully of his friends and his opponents. And I think we should have opponents. We certainly should have friends. But we should have respect for every single person on this planet. And we should speak with respect. We don't need to agree when we don't agree. We can disagree, but we should do it respectfully. And I think that something's got to happen to help us get back on track with that. We've got to learn how to express our disagreement without becoming so angry at each other. I think anger is a flaw in our society that we're developing. And I would like to say it's a mistake. What do you think? I agree. Yeah. Yeah. So from now on, you and I are going to get along. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay, let's talk about that wonderful picture of my other side that we saw of the bus. Okay. Um, do you think you could say something respectful about it? <laughs> Again? There, see, I there said it is. It. There it is. What do you think? I think it's absolutely fabulous. No, you're supposed to be honest. Well, you know me. I am honest. We're disagreeing here. Oh. <laughs> um. We're supposed to set a good example. Okay. Okay. Let's work on it. Actually, though, <laughs> I, I am very, very serious about this, and I, I wanted to bring it up today. Um, if, if someone could get us to just stop and think about what we're saying, the world would be so different. Um, I have a little plaque on my office at home, and it's uh, the wisdom of a cowboy. And it says, people should taste their words before they spit them out. I love that. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if mm -hmm. we all did that? So think about it. Uh, we really need to learn to take better care of each other. So how do we do that? We, we listen to the science life and we're ready to do it and then all of a sudden we forget, just like that. Well, 
<laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful filthy. that you would ask that as a sincere question. I think that the way that we speak respectful of each other mm -hmm. is not by being real careful with our words, but it's by developing an attitude of respect for each other. And I think that was President Reagan's uh, secret. I think he respected everyone. Uh, he, he had some enemies that concerned him about the safety of the world. He was worried about nuclear weapons and a lot of things. And he would speak strongly. Mm -hmm. But he always, whenever I've witnessed him on film or in person, he always would speak with respect. And it's healthy to have your own thoughts. I think it's healthy to disagree. I think it's healthy to express why you disagree, but we need to do it with a little bit of human dignity. Mm -hmm. I believe that every single person on this earth deserves to be respected. And I think that if, if we respect them, then we will never talk them in a way that doesn't seem respectful. Thanks. What do you think? I really, I really agree with that. And I learned this in social emotional. <laughs> <laughs> in the upcoming one. That's, I, yeah, I'm, I'm making mental notes about that. I'm I really apologizing am. if I embarrassed you when I brought that up in front of camera whether or not you would teach that class, but we would like an answer before we shut down. <laughs> it's in the works. It's coming. It's in the works. Yep. Okay, thank Getting you. Getting ideas. We'll see you next time.